So we have now arrived at our next lesson in our systematic theology, where now we're dealing with the doctrine of God. This Lord's Day, we will be taking time going over God's incommunicable attributes. So human beings, being created in the image of God, we possess in us some of the attributes that are found in God, albeit in a lesser form. You know, this is what separates us from the animals and that God created and places us in a unique relationship with him. However, there are some attributes that God possesses that are not found in us and completely distinguishes God from us. This is what we mean when we say incommunicable attributes. And this is what we will be talking about today. From the outset, it must be noted that throughout church history, we, there have been many different ways that theologians have sought to distinguish the different attributes that we see in God. You have with some of the early church fathers what's known as the negative and positive attributes of God. You have some in particular with the Lutheran camp where they talk about the operative or indwelling and outgoing attributes. You see with you know, some of the more existentialists in, in our view, those that try to view the attributes of God from a more subjective point of view where they categorize God's attributes by way of man's feeling of dependence over and against the opposing power of sin, for example. And then you have some who try to categorize the attributes of God from a metaphysical or a psychological standpoint. Now, in me pointing out these differences, I am not trying to give credence to those different views, but I'm pointing them out because of the fact that what we see with theologians is you know, these distinctions that are being made. And in them making these distinctions, there is a recognition that God is not like us and completely distinct from us, but then also that God somehow does relate to us. And all of these different methods that we see in people trying to classify God's attributes is a recognition of the fact that God is both transcendent as well as imminent. imminent. And such as with the term person, when we were talking about the Trinity itself, there is no perfect way to accurately describe all of God's attributes. Now, we do find that in utilizing the categories of communicable and incommunicable attributes, we are best able to talk about what we see the Bible so clearly articulate. Now, make no mistake about it. The fact that you know we're doing this, that this exercise is being done, is not because theologians are trying to flex their theological muscles, but because of what we truly find in the scriptures. You know, we see the fact that God reveals himself to us in his word, and thus what we try and do is to seek to understand God as he reveals himself to us. Herman Bobbick, in his Doctrine of God, makes this note. It was necessary so to conceive of the distinction between one attribute and another that the unity, simplicity, and immutability of God's essence remained unimpaired, while at the same time, this distinction was not viewed as a merely subjective, arbitrary, and untrue conjecture of the human mind. Hence, it has been correctly remarked that the distinctions are based on God's revelation itself. 
For the names which we use to address God are not of human invention. We do not discover them. On the contrary, left to ourselves, we would be altogether silent with respect to God. We would try to forget him, and we would deny every one of his names. We have no delight in the knowledge of his ways. We continually pro protest against all his names or attributes, against his independence, his sovereignty, his justice, and his love. And we set our face like a flint against all his perfections. But it is God himself who reveals all his excellencies and puts his names upon our lips. It is he who gives himself these names, and it is he who defends them against every attack. End quote. When we look through the pages of scriptures, we notice the many different ways that God describes himself. And Thus, we can't ignore them. We don't want to be like so many people in the church today that see this type of delving into the scriptures as too intellectual. That's silly. I mean, think about this. No wife will tell their husband, honey, you're spending way too much time learning about me. You're spending way too much time understanding me and trying to really get to know me. I, I find this very troublesome. No. That would be silly. Any person would understand that if a husband is willing to take the time to know and learn his wife, it's because he loves her and he wants to understand her. And in the same way, it is that deep love that we have for God that drives any Christian to take the time to really and truly understand God as he reveals himself to us in his word. Now, that being said, of all the different ways that theologians have come up to try and separate out the attributes of God, the incommunicable, communicable distinction has you know, found um, the most favor amongst those within the Reformed community and truly does seem to best articulate what we find in the word of God. So all that being said, what do we mean when we say incommunicable attributes? The incommunicable attributes are those attributes of God that bear no resemblance in man. In other words, they completely distinguish God from man. They emphasize the absolute distinctiveness of God. They magnify his transcendent greatness and demonstrates that man is not God. Under this category of incommunicable attributes, we have four attributes that we'll be discussing today. His self-existence, his simplicity, his infinity, and his immutability. And obviously, we will I will explain each of these attributes. Let's start first with his incommunicable attribute of self-existence or independence. God does not depend on anything or anyone for his own existence. God has the ground of his existence in himself. He is uncaused. This is different from us, where we are dependent upon God for our very being and existence. We see in the book of John, chapter 5, verse 26, John writing this, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. God is also independent in that he has no need for us to accomplish anything. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, 
we note this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward his off his hand or say to him, what have you done? This understanding of God's independence stands in contradiction to a lot of what you hear today coming from many churches, in particular, those word of faith type churches where they say that God is dependent upon us in order to accomplish his will. But don't take my word for it. Listen to this from Miles, the late Miles Monroe in his book, Understanding the Purpose and Power of Prayer. When we pray, we carry out our responsibility to demonstrate what our relationship with the Lord means in terms of living and ruling in the world. Since he has given humanity authority over the earth, he requires the permission or authorization of mankind in order to act on the earth. This is why when we stop praying, we allow God's purposes for the world to be hindered. Hmm. Well, that sounds completely opposite to what we just saw in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35. This is a lie. We know that God does not need us in order to accomplish his will. As Vodi Bakum often says, God is not running for the office of God. He doesn't need us. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 through 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor informed him, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? The answer to that is no one, because he is God and we are not. God in his power is also independent. Psalm 115. Verse three tells us, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We also see that in his counsel, God is independent. Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. And lastly, God is independent of all things that exist. Back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? So as you can see, God does not need us for his existence. He is not dependent on us. Rather, we are dependent on him for everything. The next attribute that we'll look at is his simplicity. Now by that, what we mean is God is not susceptible to any division in any sense of the word. His essence and his attributes are one in him. So looking first at the attributes, we have all these different names that we find in the scripture for God. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, El Shaddai, El Shalom. Each of these pointing out a different attribute within God. What we need to remember is that in God, though different attributes, they are all united in him. Not in the sense that love, for example, is exactly the same as holiness, but rather in the sense that the same God who is the God of love is also holy. 
The same El Shaddai is also El Shalom. Understanding this keeps us from overemphasizing one attribute, like love, over and against another one of his attributes, like holiness. All of these attributes are one in God and cannot be divided or separated. Another way of saying this is you cannot pin one attribute of God over and against another one of his attributes because in him they find perfect harmony. One attribute isn't greater than another attribute. Now this is very important to state because obviously, especially in our day and age, you have many people that struggle with the doctrine of hell. And why do they struggle with the doctrine of hell? Because they don't understand how a God who is loving can send people to everlasting condemnation. Well, if you're overemphasizing God's attribute of love over and against his attributes of justice and righteousness, it is very easy to see how you may misunderstand why it is that there is a hell. See, it's hard for us as humans to wrap our, or wrap our minds excuse me, around this understanding. Because really and truly, if you think of us as men, none of us perfectly you know, ex you know, exhibit love and righteousness and holiness and wisdom perfectly and harmoniously. You'll find some people that may be more caring to the detriment of doing what might be actually wise. And then you might have some people that are very, very knowledgeable to the detriment of maybe being very caring or loving. So it's hard for us to fathom someone that can so perfectly execute all or, you know, ex for lack of a better word, execute all these different attributes harmoniously. But this is what we find in God. And not only is this doctrine of simplicity tied to his attributes, but also his being and his essence as well. You cannot divide up the Godhead. John 4, verse 24, you know, Jesus tells the um, woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God isn't confound to the mountain or to Jerusalem, but he can be worshiped anywhere. You cannot divide him, separate him out. Now, Understanding this keeps us from thinking of the three persons of the Trinity as three separate and divisible composites that together form the one God. This is why you see the laboring within the church, especially back with the early church fathers and even today, to make the distinctions that we do between being and personhood because we understand the simplicity of God. God cannot be divided. The third incommunicable attribute that we see is God's infinity, which is that perfection of his nature by which everything that belongs to his being is without measure or quality. Within the attribute of infinity, there are three aspects that we'll talk about that will help us to understand what we mean by infinity. His perfection, his immensity, and his eternality. Let's look at first his perfection. God is absolutely perfect in every sense of the word. He is free from limitation or defect. In fact, it is this attribute this attribute of his perfection, his infinity, that qualifies even those communicable attributes, which we will get to next Lord's Day. By that, what I mean is 
So I want you to go back and rem and remember what the sort of catechism, how the sort of catechism defines God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, if you notice how it is phrased and how it is worded, those three, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, actually help to qualify the, the latter half, his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. From the standpoint of God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his knowledge, in his righteousness, in his holiness, in his justice, in his goodness, and his truth. So God's infinity, his perfection helps to qualify that so that even in those communicable attributes, we can't say we are like God in our wisdom because we are not because he is perfect in his wisdom. So that's his perfection. Then we have his immensity or another way of putting it, his omnipresence. And by that, what we mean is God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately present in every part of his creation. Or to put it very plainly, like we see in the children's catechism, God is everywhere. Psalm 139 verses 7 through 10 tells us this. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Jeremiah, chapter 22, verses, or excuse me, chapter 23, verses 23 to 24 tells us, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? God is everywhere. But because of the fact that we assert that God is everywhere, it must be clear that we do not mean by that that God is in everything, like the pantheists would say. Robert Raymond, in his Systematic Theology, tells us this. While God is everywhere present and active in his universe, he is uncreated, ontologically stands off over against the universe that he created and is essentially distinct from it. So God is everywhere, but he is not in everything. Understanding God's omnipresence keeps us from wrongly interpreting passages that, for example, talk about God coming or going. See, when we do come across passages such as this, we must remember that this is a metaphorical, this is metaphorical language that is being used to depict a unique manifestation of God's working, either in judgment or in grace. And now this is especially the case when we see this type of phrase utilized for the Son or the Holy Spirit. Now, on a side note, this is why doctrines like the hypostatic union are so important for us to understand, it's in particular, obviously, in our understanding of Christ. For example, listen to this from John Calvin. Another absurdity which they intrude upon us 
It is that if the word of God became incarnate, it must have been enclosed in the narrow tenement of an earthly body, is sheer petulance. For although the boundless essence of the word was united with human nature into one person, we have no idea of any enclosing. The Son of God descended miraculously from heaven, yet without abandoning heaven, was pleased to be conceived miraculously in the virgin's womb, to live on the earth and hang upon the cross, and yet always filled the world as from the beginning. So we clearly see from the Bible that God is everywhere present. We acknowledge that he is transcendent, while at the same time, near to us. The final aspect as it pertains to God's infinity is his eternality, which by that we mean that God transcends time. He is everlasting. There is no beginning or end with God. God created time for man. And as such, he is not bound by time. Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, puts it this way. Our existence is marked off by days and weeks and months and years. Not so the existence of God. Our life is divided into a past, present, and future. But there is no such division in the life of God. We see in passages like in Psalm 90 verses 2 and verse 4, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch by night. Psalm 102 verse 12, the psalmist writes, But you, O Lord, abide forever and your name to all generations. Now, although our God is truly eternal, this does not mean that he is completely disconnected from time. What I mean by that is when God interacts with us, he does so in time and space. So, for example, when he tells Noah in Genesis that he's going to send rain upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, there was no ambiguity there. He really sent rain for 40 days and 40 nights. When Jesus tells and predicts the destruction of the Jewish temple and says that this generation that he was standing before will not pass before these things take place. He meant that there was no ambiguity there in the book of Revelation. When Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. He meant that. So even though we acknowledge that God is not limited or affected by time and exists outside the confines of time because he created time, we also acknowledge that in dealing with us, he does so in time and space. The last incommunicable attribute that we'll be looking at is God's immutability, which simply put means God does not change. He is unchangeable. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, we have written, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of God, are not consumed. In James 1, verse 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And lastly, Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Our God, being a perfect God, does not change. Any change in God, being a perfect God, would be either for better or for worse. And if the change was for worse, 
would, that would imply that he's stepping away from perfection into imperfection. If it's for the better, that would imply that he's currently imperfect and moving towards perfection. So if we assert that God is truly perfect, we have to also assert that God is immutable, that he's unchangeable. But there are objections to this. For example, there are some people that say, well, you know, the Bible talks about God changing his mind or God regretting doing an action. If God does not change, why does the Bible talk about stuff like this over and over again? And as proof, they will go to passages like in Genesis chapter six, verses five through seven, where we see God regretting creating man. Or in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 11, when he states that he regretted making Saul king. Or probably the biggest is in Jonah chapter 3, where in this particular chapter, we see God calling Jonah to go to Nineveh to tell them that in 40 days, you will be destroyed. And then after the 40 days, because obviously the people in Nineveh repented, he did not do that. He changed his mind. In these passages, we see God regretting something, deciding to change course. So doesn't this show that God truly isn't immutable? Not at all, not in the slightest. See, in the scriptures, we have clear passages that declare that God does not change his mind. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? 1 Samuel 15, verse 29. Also, the glory of the Lord will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. But some will say, well, clearly the Bible's contradicting itself then, because then there were some passages where God did change his mind. How do you account for this? We need to understand something very clear, especially when it comes to reading the Bible. When God communicates to us, he is communicating to people who change. When he makes warnings, he is warning people who are subject to change. God is communicating to them the consequences of sin. So when God makes these pronouncements, he is not divulging, and hear me clear here, he is not divulging his eternal, unchangeable decree to them. Rather, he is letting them know that there is a consequence for their sinning, and if they continue in their consequence, it will be to their demise. Listen to this from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom, to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. I mean, really, how else will God communicate with us? I mean, think about it. If Jonah had went to Nineveh and told them, hey, in 40 days, because of all the sinning that you have done, in 40 days, nothing will happen to you. you you'll actually be perfectly fine. There won't be any destruction. Do you really think they would have repented? Do you really think 
they would have went in sackcloth and ashes and repented of their sins? No. Now, even though technically Jonah would have been right in saying that, what would not have happened would have been what God intended to happen, which was them repenting for their sins. Robert Raymond puts it this way. God always acts the same way toward moral evil and the same way toward moral good in his every reaction to men's responses to him. The immutable moral fixity of his character is evident. If men and women alter their reactions to him, he will always respond in a manner consistent with his immutably holy character. End quote. In other words, from our vantage point, if we sin, we know that God will punish us for it. And if we are truly repentant, then God will respond accordingly. Louis Burkhoff puts it this way. And if the scripture speaks of his repenting, changing his intention, and altering his relation to sinners when they repent, we should remember that this is only an anthropopathic way of speaking. In reality, the change is not in God, but in man and in man's relations to God. The issue with so many of these theologians or skeptics that bring up things like this is, in reality, they are assuming that they know something regarding God's eternal decree, his secret and hidden will. Because the only way that you can positively and definitively say that God has changed his mind is for you to actually know what is in God's mind. And unless you are God, I submit that you do not know what is in God's mind to make such a statement as to say that God has changed it. So to think and say this is to be very presumptuous. That being said, the fact that God is immutable does not mean that God is immobile, which is something that you hear some theologians try to argue. They basically say, that if God acted in any way, it would be an affront to his immutability. And thus, for God to remain immutable would mean that God would have to not be doing anything at all. Basically, he just would need to chill and relax. Now, this obviously does not describe the God that we see active in the scriptures. For example, in passages like in Exodus chapter 16, verse 4, where we see that God says he's going to bring bread, manna, to the people in Israel. Or in Job, Job 38, verse 41, when God says, Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? You know, verses like this and many, many more that you can read imply that God is actively doing something in creation. He is not immobile, but very mobile. So we do not need to make the false assumption that because God is immutable, therefore he is immobile. Charles Hodge in his systematic theology puts it this way. We know that God is immutable in his being, his perfections, and his purposes. And we know that he is perpetually active. And therefore activity and immutability must be compatible. And no explanation of the latter inconsistent with the former ought to be admitted and well, I hope you can see in looking at all these attributes that we just went over that there is a clear distinction between God and man. See, in our modern day and age, we like to think of God 
as a little bit better than us. I mean, he's God, but then, you know, we're kind of close to him. He's just, you know, a little bit smarter than us, a little bit wiser than us, a little bit bigger with us with a longer beard than us. We don't like to think of him as who he truly is, which is God. And these attributes remind us that though we are ranked higher than the animals, there's still a wide chasm between us and God. Like it says in Exodus 15, verse 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? The answer to that question is simple. No one. There is not a being anywhere who is like God, unless we forget these attributes remind us of that. God is self-existent, where we are created. God is infinite, where we are finite. He is everywhere, we are not. He is eternal, where we have a beginning and an end. He is immutable, where we constantly change. His attributes are one in him and harmonious, where that is not the case with us. Simply put, he is God, but we are not. So now this concludes our lesson for today on God's incommunicable attributes. Next Lord's Day, we're going to begin looking at God's communicable attributes.